Hello, Sandra May. Hello, it's a pleasure being here. Yes, you're working at ETH in Zürich. That's right. And you're a guest today, and I was listening to your talk this morning. And um, I decided to invite you to my office to speak about um, your interesting numerical simulations of complex geometries. Thank you for being here. So what is the difficult thing uh, doing numerics for so-called complex geometries? Well, the problem is that usually when we do numerics, we, um, for like finite volume methods, for example, we need to have a grid. So we, we need a grid that we work with and generating a grid for a complex geometry is non-trivial. I mean, it's one of the things that people usually neglect because like somebody else is taking care of it, but it's actually very complicated to come up with a nice unstructured grid for complex geometry. That's why people try other approaches, for example, the approach I'm working on. Mm -hmm. So how complex is complex geometry and which application I have to think? So one of the standard applications for um, the research I'm doing is flow around an airplane. So you think of an airplane or a space shuttle in three dimensions that is fairly complex and it's really hard to capture with a Cartesian grid. So, um, of course, if your geometry is just a box, then it's fairly easy to generate a nice grid for it. But, yeah, if you think of um, airplane or of trucks, for example, if you want to simulate flow around trucks or flow around a Formula One car, there are many little details that you want to take care of because they can influence the, um, they can generate vertices. And then it can easily become infinitely complicated to generate a suitable grid. Mm. So uh, thinking about doing numerics around uh, a moving truck or a moving airplane, of course, there are two components of the grid which are important. One is um, the surface of the object, um, which is inside the flow. And of course, then you also need points in the surrounding of, of your car or truck or Uh, airplane or whatever you want to simulate. So the grid is probably uh, situated just outside the thing and on, on top of the surface. Yeah, so the grid is typically um, set up such that the object is in the middle of the grid. And then uh, at um, um, far away from the object, you stop having a grid because that's computationally expensive and you impose certain um, suitable far-field boundary conditions. But what you're mainly interested in is um, how the flow behaves around the object. So what happens when the flow hits the object? Are there any vertices? Or like for an airfoil, how is the drag and lift? And so, so the main thing you want to evaluate is um, quantities close to the surface of your object. Yes. And so probably a lot of the points of your grid will be on the surface of the, ob of the object. No, actually not, because the surface has a lower dimension. So if you think of, um, let's say, in two dimensions, so you take a big um, a square grid. And so what, what we do to generate our grid is a so-called cut-cell approach. So what we do is we, we take our object, let's say we take an airplane, we put it onto our square paper, and then we take out our pencil, we draw the line around the boundary of the airplane, Then we put the airplane away and then we take out the scissors and then we cut along the line of our airplane. And whatever is left over is the grid we use for computations. And so the cut cells are the cells around the boundary of the airplane, like the ones that are randomly left over from cutting out. And they are actually like if you have a, if you started out with an n by n square grid 
then you will only have O of n cut cells. So they, the boundary of the surface is one dimension lower than your overall number of cells. Yeah, okay. I think um, my question was triggered by my experiences with elliptic problems where sometimes uh, you just make the grid finer around the surface of the object just to be more precise there and um, to uh, lower the influence of errors there. Well, well, we also do that. So, so, I mean, you also want to have finer and more cells overall in the bike park of mm. your airplane. Mm -hmm. So what is the special treatment um, you have Uh, developed for treating your cut cells so um, cut cells so cut cells are very nice because it's very uh, straightforward and fairly uh, fairly easy to generate grid for a complex geometry because it's really just cutting out you don't need to uh, take care of how big your elements are and to make them I mean, typically, if you think of finite elements in an unstructured grid, you want to have certain properties that your grid cells are shape regular and so on. And, and this is very complicated to, to, to generate such a grid. But for mm. cut cells, you really, it's just cutting out. The big problem is that because it's just cutting out, that these cut cells, they become, become arbitrarily small. So and also arbitrarily shaped arbitrarily shaped but well we actually so if you think of having a curved object that we cut out we would replace the curved part of the object by a straight line so typically in two dimensions cut cells would be triangles or four-sided or five-sided cells but um, one re big issue is that they can be arbitrarily small and intuitively one might think if the cut cell is too small just throw it away because it's it doesn't really influence the solution the issue is that practically it's not trivial at all to generate your uh, to to modify your mesh generator to do that because you need to change the i mean if you think of a cell then a cell needs to know what the neighbor is and it has a lot of information and you would need to change all of this information if you want to cut one cell out so you need to change the grid connectivity and that's not trivial um so you do have these very small cells And the issue is, well, the biggest issue is the so-called small cell problem. Hmm. So when you solve hyperbolic problems, so like Euler equations, which is one of the standard models for simulating flow on an airplane, then if you use an explicit time-stepping scheme, your time step is coupled by the CFL condition to the size of the cell. So if you have a very small cell, you would need to take a very small time step. Yeah, and this um, comes from the fact that we have to have stable calculation procedures and the stability exactly. is ensured by coupling time stepping and space um, yes. dimension together and for for hyperbolic problems these are usually coupled by delta t proportionally to in one dimension delta x or like in higher dimension it's a little bit more complicated but roughly speaking it needs to be related to the size of the cell mm. and so, so if the space dimension gets really small in order to find these small um, parts which you have on the boundary also the time stepping has to be very small Yes, so, so if you want to use an explicit scheme, you would need to use a very, very small time step. And, and I mean, these cut cells can be a factor of a million smaller than a Cartesian cell. Mm. So we would need to take a time step, which is a factor of a million smaller than the time step we use on our Cartesian cell. So um, that's not practical. So therefore, you need to do something else. So therefore, the approach that um, I'm taking together with Marsha Berger, my former PhD advisor, is to try to deal with these arbitrarily small cells. So we try to do a time... Keep step. them. Yes, we keep them and we try to 
develop a time stepping which is suitable for these cells being arbitrarily small, which is stable despite the cells being very small and despite taking a time step which is appropriate for the explicit cells. And what is the idea behind that uh, treatment of the very small cells? The idea is actually very simple. It's um, everybody who, who knows something about ODE numerics, if you have a stiff ODE system, then you don't use an explicit time-stepping with tiny time-step, but instead you solve it implicitly. And um, in the same way, we, we go implicit on our cut cells, so we want to use an implicit time-stepping on cut cells to guarantee stability. But at the same time, we want to keep an explicit time-stepping away from our cut cells because it's much cheaper. So the, the goal is really to have overall on most cells of the grid, like on all the Cartesian cells, we use an explicit time-stepping But at the boundary of our object, our airplane, on our cut cells, we use an implicit time-stepping. So the, the question was, how do we couple our two systems? Hmm. Yeah, of course, uh, with the implicit, of course, you always gain this more stability. This is why you take them. But of course, you have to pay that uh, it's more expensive in numerical terms to really get results. That is true. Yeah, because in general, you will have to use something like a Newton's method or derivatives of Newton's method and have that, certain that iterations. That is completely steps. true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, so even for um, so when you want to solve hyperbolic problems, um, even for linear equations such as linear advection equation. Um, you typically need to have, or your method has slope limiters. And slope limiters are, by default, nonlinear operators. So typically you have nonlinear methods. So yeah, you typically have to solve a nonlinear system. Mm. But um, as we discussed before, the number of cut cells is small relative to the number of overall grid cells. So if in 2D, if I have an n-square grid, I only have O of n cut cells. So it's not that I'm fully implicit on all of my grid, but I'm only implicit on cut cells and direct neighbors of cut cells. And um, of course, it means if I do flow around one big connected object, such as flow around an airplane or flow around a truck, all the cut cells will be coupled. So that means I do get a giant system, but we've also invested quite some time in thinking about how to effectively solve this implicit system in parallel. Yeah, I was... I was just asking for the end of your sentence to say then probably in parallel. <laughs> And then you already had that. Yes, I mean, um, um, otherwise it's, it's getting to... I mean, one, one big goal of our research was to, um, to develop new methods, but at the same time to um, build the corresponding software so that we can really do realistic simulations. So, so we really... The goal is to solve... Um, to solve problems using mathematics and not to, to generate um, a method which nobody uses. So um, um, therefore, we, we, yeah, one big focus is to have a good software which works parallel with like, well, currently we are, we are on a small scale in terms of parallel. So currently we only use like 16 processors, but hopefully fairly soon we want to go up to several thousands. Yeah. And that's where the fun starts. <laughs> That's where the fun and also the pain starts, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I guess just starting with um, a serious parallel system and 16 is already kind of serious, then you would already see the drawbacks of things you overlooked by doing parallel things. Yes. Yeah, and um, of course, um, having a combination of explicit and implicit um, um, algorithms 
um, asks for new proofs if everything stays stable and what are the conversions results and so on. So what's, um, what's known up to now? So um, we've developed our methods as part of our finite volume schema. So our goal, so, so we, we started out with an explicit second order schema and our goal is to develop a fully second order mixed explicit implicit schema. And um, so we've invested a lot of time into finding a suitable connections between the explicit and mm -hmm. the implicit scheme. So we wanted to make sure that we connect the schemes in such a way that we are conservative. So we don't want to, typically when you solve conservation laws, it's very important to fully stay conservative. So we want to make sure that we have conservation up to machine precision. Which means you don't lose mass. Yes, we, we don't want to lose mass. And um, at the same time, we wanted to have a stable connection. And we've developed a method which we called flux bounding. So we basically connect our two schemes based on fluxes. And the resulting method is conservative by construction. Uh, because you count the fluxes. Because we, um, because we have certain transition cells between our explicit and implicit scheme which reuse the fluxes from their neighbors. So, so this way we make sure that we don't lose any mass. What's going in goes out. Exactly. So, so what's leaving um, um, the explicit part of the scheme has to enter the implicit in the other way around. Mm. And um, so our scheme is conservative by construction and we can also show a TVD or total variation diminishing stability result. So we can show that if we combine our second order explicit scheme with a first order implicit scheme, then the resulting scheme is total variation diminishing. In, uh, in practice, we actually combine a second order explicit with a second order implicit. So for this one, we currently don't have a stability result. So one of the, it's not as bad because we, we mostly do incompressible flow at the moment. And mm. for incompressible flow, you don't have shocks typically. So um, we don't see any uh, stability problems in our numerical simulations. But to be, um, to be mathematically thorough, we do want to have also a stability result for our second-order scheme. So what we want to do is we want to combine our second-order implicit scheme with a first-order implicit scheme by means of a so-called FCT, a flux-corrected transport approach. So that's some kind of limiter between our first-order scheme, for which we do have a theoretical result, and our second-order scheme. So the idea is that in smooth flow, we would use a second-order scheme. And once we get into unsmooth flow, we would change back to the first-order scheme for which we do have a TVD result. So if we, are, if we are able, and I'm very positive that we will be able to construct a suitable switch between these two schemes, then hopefully we should also have a TVD result for our second-order scheme. But this will be future research. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a good moment um, to go into the development of shocks a bit more precisely um, because, of course, this is one of the um, very important things if you uh, want to model flow, um, airflow around objects and especially if the flow is really fast. And so um, it's probably very important that your numerical scheme is able to handle shocks And in which way and do you handle shocks? And what are the problems? Maybe because uh, other persons never handle shocks, and so they, <laughs> they even don't know uh, what are the problems with that. So um, 
so so sharks typically develop when you have like um you, you need to have a nonlinear equation for sharks to develop mm -hmm. and um the the classic example is Euler equations where you typically have to deal with sharks and um, mathematically you can think of sharks as being discontinuities in your solution so you have a jump i have a jump in my solution exactly and um the issue is that if you um, let's think of a second order finite volume scheme so um, to get a second order scheme our in it, so in a finite volume schemes the unknowns are cell averages so cell averages roughly cons um, correspond to a piecewise constant solution That means to get a second-order scheme, we need to reconstruct slopes on each cell. So what we do is we reconstruct slopes on each cell so that we have a linear polynomial on each cell, and we use that to compute fluxes. If we reconstruct the slopes only based on, uh, let's say, central difference quotients in one dimensions, then it can lead to oscillations around our shocks or around our jumps in the solution. It, it looks a little bit similar to the Gibbs phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And um, these oscillations can become very big, and they have several problems. So one problem is that if you think of, I mean, we want to solve the Euler equations, which has physical properties like there's density and pressure. It could happen if you have two big oscillations that these then, um, quantities become negative. And if the quantities become negative, then we compute yeah. unphysical stuff which is not so good and also our code crashes which is also not good yeah negative density is an interesting physical <laughs> concept exactly so this is one reason why you don't want to have oscillations another reason more mathematically is that um, if you try to do some theory for like let's say finite volume scheme basically For a scalar conservation law, the only uh, convergence theorem you have, which is like the Lux-Vendroff theorem, says that um, if a sequence um, or if a if there is a converging sequence, it converges to the weak solution or to a weak solution. But in order to get this convergence sequence, you usually assume that your TVD scheme, a total variation diminishing scheme, and if you um, if you just use your polynomial based on interpolation you won't get a tvd scheme in general so what instead instead you need to use or what finite volume people typically use is so-called slope limiters so when you go back to the reconstruction of your linear polynomials you the first step is still to construct a linear polynomial but then the second step you apply a so-called slope limiter so you look at uh, the, if you connect two neighboring points and guess the slope of this connection, that the slope is not too different from the one you had before. Yes, so um, a slope limiter is a fairly complex object in finite volume. It's actually a kind of art to come up with a good slope limiter. So a slope limiter consists out of two parts. One part is I need to detect whether I'm close to a shock or whether I'm in a smooth region of a flow. Mm -hmm. And then depending on what I think, where I am, I need to react. If I think I'm in a smooth region of a flow, I don't do anything. I keep the polynomial based on interpolation. If I think I'm close to a shock, I either reduce the polynomial degree or I reduce the slope or I need to react in a certain way. But the issue is how do you detect whether you are close to a shock or not? And one, like in 1D, the easiest way is to compute a right-sided finite difference and a left-sided finite difference And yeah, if they are very similar, you conclude that you are in a smooth region. If they are very different, then you're probably close to a shock and you should react. But coming up with a good slope limiter, which reliably detects 
being close to a shock and not limiting too much not being close to a shock is actually extremely difficult. I would think so. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And on the other hand, it's it's uh, fairly important uh, to really find them because that's so on the one hand, so fr from the engineering point of view, that's the point where you have to kind of be sure that uh, the material won't break and nothing uh, bad will happen if you construct airfoils and so on. And um, on the other hand, um, from the traditional point of view, you would always try to make things a bit smoother because this is good for the numerics. And uh, maybe you are not allowed to do that when you are looking for shocks. Well, I mean, one thing, uh, one possibility to avoid shocks is just to add a lot of artificial yeah, viscosity. Yeah. Then, then, of course, no you shocks. don't have shocks anymore. Yeah. But then you typically only have a first-order method and your results are really bad. So, so um, um, yeah, the, the goal is to keep everything as sharp as possible and to add as little viscosity as possible. But... Um, um, still keep everything running and stable. Yeah, just not to have artificial oscillations, yes. uh, which are also unphysical and uh, numerically disturbing. That is true. So, well, I guess especially in this aspect, there are, there are several different opinions. So there's like the, there's, there are many people who say they don't want to have any overshoot. And then there are people who say, well, if it's only like two, three percent, it's fine. Other people say maybe even five, like, Opinions differ a little bit, yeah. but yeah, you want to avoid big oscillations, definitely. Definitely, yes. It's also kind of funny, I'm doing um, a lecture course on modeling, and then of course there are a lot of different topics, and one topic is modeling of traffic. And of course there are several questions you could have. One question which kind of everybody has who was ever traveling German Autobahn is <laughs> why are there these um, gems out of nothing? So there is no reason for them. Uh, so you're standing there like half an hour, nothing is moving. That's true. And finally you can move on and um, kind of things dilute and nothing was there which you can detect as a reason for that. And of course, one possibility is um, that um, the equation, which um, is a good model for that, is an hyperbolic equation, which allows for shock. Yes. And you are just sitting <laughs> in such a shock, so where you just have to stop, and then only after a certain amount of time are able to move on. Yeah, you can suddenly start. Yeah. And then, of course, there's always this problem that you write down the equation and then you show that it's numerically really difficult. And then everybody's like, yeah, but then we should just change the model. And then I say, but then there are no longer shocks in the system, so it's not a good model anymore. So yeah, that, I, that's always a tricky part, to get a model which is fairly close to reality, but not too complicated to... Yeah. So um, at the moment, you are a postdoc, Uh, working in Zurich on these things, where was the point when you started to work on finite volumes and um, detecting of shocks? So I, um, for my PhD, I went to the US. So I did my PhD at the Curran Institute in New York, and um, uh, there I, um, the system in the US is a little bit different for the PhD. So you start out with taking classes, and. So, so in Germany, when you do a PhD, you directly decide on your PhD advisor when you go to that um, university. But in the US, you first do classes, and at the end of your first year, you start to look for an advisor. And um, I decided that I wanted to work with Marsha Berger, and um, Marsha is working on finite volume schemes, so she's expert in 
yeah, flow for complex geometry, adaptive mesh refinement for fine volume schemes. And so she, she's a very hands-on person. So she really like spends 90% of her time programming and um, trying to work on practical problems using mathematical methods to do that. And I found her research very interesting. So that's when I started to work on finite volume schemes and um, hyperbolic conservation laws and as part of my PhD, I also spent two summers at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab working in a kind of interdisciplinary group there. And so, yeah, so, so it's it was a great time. I really enjoyed my summers in Berkeley working in a group out of like five to six people who are like some of them are mathematicians, some are computer scientists, some are engineers. And um, everybody kind of does what he or she can do best. And yeah, so, so, so we all worked on final volume schemes. Yeah, I think this is a thing uh, in fluid flow that um, you really benefit from hearing the opinions of other persons working in the same field, which are not always mathematicians, but could be physicists and engineers. And also here working in Karlsruhe at the Technical University, there are so many groups doing fluid flow, all with a different point of view, but um, it's really interesting to bring them together sometimes. Yeah, totally. And I guess especially for our young people, it's really kind of eye-opening experience um, to leave the culture of mathematics and to see what others are doing and how they are doing that. And how they approach things. It's also like yeah. if you give a talk, it's very different if you give the talk in front of a mathematical audience or in front of like a more physical or engineering oriented, like the kind of questions that people ask are typically very different. Yeah, so you show uh, some simulation and they say, but this looks odd. <laughs> Shouldn't it be like that? <laughs> yes. My feeling says this can't be true. <laughs> and then you're like, well, hmm, they are probably numerical artifacts. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, so after working in the US for some time, uh, you came back to Europe? Yes, so my I, I wanted to come uh, come back to Europe. And so I... Uh, I looked into several places and decided that ETH would be a good place to do the postdoc and was yeah happy to get an offer there and to since then I'm at ETH and yeah it's a great place to be. Yeah. So um you already pointed out that the process to become a person with a PhD is slightly different in the US. Are there other um, big differences between working scientifically uh, there in the US and here in Europe so in Germany and Swiss? Um, well, the, the PhD program is very different in the yeah. sense that um, Americans at least typically start with a bachelor. So as part of your PhD, you first do a kind of master. So, And I think Courant was extreme in that aspect. So we had to um, take 20 classes as part of our PhD study, which is always like when... when PhD student at ETH tell me that they have to take three classes and they complain about yeah, having to take so many classes. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yes, so it's, um, well, that's definitely different. What's also, what's also different, at least if I compare with Germany in general, is the supervision, I would say. So, I mean, that of course depends on the specific person, but um At least at Quran, it was fairly um, normal that you meet your advisor once a week. So you had a very steady interaction with your supervisor, some more often, some less often. But it's it's much more often than I typically saw people meeting the advisor in Germany. And of course, everything is 
not as hierarchical as some places in Germany might be. So, so like, um, uh, yeah, everybody, like all the professors, they are just first name basis and they are very nice and outgoing. And it's, um, it, it might have been special to, to Koran, but it like, it was like a big family. So it was, yeah, in that aspect, it was maybe different to some other places in Germany, but, um, well, the salary is worse than in Germany, I would say. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you don't only go abroad for, for having a, a great scientific um, environment there, but also for all the other experiences of, like, yeah, living in a big foreign city and meeting international people. And um, that certainly, I mean, that was something I spent particularly planned but so out of the PhD students we were like 17 students in each year and roughly speaking one third was Asian one third was European and one third was American mm. and so I ended up having very international friends which um, which really I really benefited from it because you you get different viewpoints on certain things it's just just normal things like I mean, if you live in Germany, it's normal for you that at Easter you have off. But of course, in the U.S., we had to work on Easter. Mm. Like like little things which are like totally normal for you and you never think about them. And then you go to another country and realize, well, there are, there are many different religions. So you can't just have only Catholic holidays. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because... Um At the moment, I'm teaching um, at the so-called international department here. So this is a bachelor course in um, in engineering um, coming from all over the world. And of course, I was asking them a bit about their experiences in Germany, if they like that and why they came here and so on. And all of them were really pointing out that they benefit so much from meeting people from all over the world during their course. And I didn't really think about that before. I was more thinking like, of course, you know, becoming an engineer in Germany is, has always a good name on it. And yeah. um, if they are kind of, um, they believe in themselves enough that they can make it in Germany, why not come here? But um, really, they they were all um, pointing out that meeting people from Asia, from Germany, from Eastern Europe and so on and doing that all together, sitting together, doing the problem sheets and so on. They really enjoy that a lot. Yes, it's weird because it's, well, I mean, it's one of the things people always kind of say, this is cool and this is, but yeah, it, it really, it enriches your life if you've met people from other nations and actually like not just meet them once for an evening, but live with them together for a while and met them on a regular basis and... Mm you you start to see quite some differences between cultures and you also start to find out that you've been very narrow in some things and that you need to broaden up and so um yeah that's certainly uh, if you live really abroad for a while that's one of the things you notice yeah so what are your plans scientifically for the next year or two um well they're actually like two different well Speaking of the, the scheme we talked before, so, so like the um, scheme that I'm working on for finite volume schemes, so I'm uh, one one step would be to 
um, go from like my current 16 cores parallel machine to like a big scale um, implementation. And then I would like to extend my fluid solver to a fluid structure interaction solver. But that, that takes big simulation power and um, also a little bit in terms of method development. Yeah, quite a few ideas, I guess. Yeah, but it's it's good to have goals. <laughs> yes. So thank you very much that you took the time on such a stressful day where you had to travel and give a talk and have a lot of discussions to have this conversation with me. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. 